1: in his prayer, just before he died, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. Now you and I are supposed to be like Jesus and like our master in the completion of the work that God gives us to do. It's very appropriate that we just heard a song that says somebody's running out of time not very far from here. And we who are obviously old certainly know that we're running out of time. But you young folks, you have any you have no idea whether you're going to be given another day or not. None of us knows. And so the great question is: will we be able to say, when we face our master, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work you gave me to do. That is my prayer. I suppose like almost everybody here, I often feel as though I have way too much to do. There just isn't any way that I'm going to get it all done. But I do believe with all my heart that it is always possible to do the will of God. It is not always possible to do everything that you would like to do, and certainly not always possible to do everything that everybody else thinks that you ought to do, as a friend of mine said, God loves you and everybody has a wonderful plan for your life. (laughs) That certainly rings bells with me. So the subject that I have prepared for this morning is probably a very strange one. You already have a few clues as to what I'm going to talk about, but I'm going to be using an old word that we practically never hear today, And it's the name of a sin, and the sin is sloth. I lived in the jungles of South America, and we had those animals called sloths, and they are the slowest moving animals you can imagine. Maybe some of you have seen them. Um, I don't think you have them in the wilds of Georgia, but you might. But you can hardly even see them move. They move so slowly, and they hang in trees, and they can just hang there, days and nights without moving a muscle, so whether the animal gets its name from the habit or whether we take the habit from the animal, I don't know, but I think it's pretty clear what it means. It means laziness, it means procrastination, it means an unwillingness to walk straight up to the thing that we know we ought to do and do it now we can't serve the lord we can't be pleasing to the lord unless we're doing his will you know he says so plainly to us in john 14 if you love me do what i say and we often are very facetious about our own laziness oh yeah well that's something i was going to do a long time ago one of these days i'm going to get around to that you know Do you have any idea that you have one of these days to get around to that? If it is something that you really think you ought to do, then maybe you need to consider the fact that there are a whole lot of other things that are a whole lot of fun and that other people think you ought to do, but maybe you you have to say no to some of those things in order to say yes to the will of God. We must learn to serve. I hope some of you are familiar with this wonderful little devotional book called Daily Strength for Daily Needs. It's been out for about a hundred years, and it is packed with wisdom. I'll just give you a little sample. Under the heading of the verse from the scripture, from one of the Psalms, I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. And James 4.14 says, Ye know not what shall be on the morrow. And then someone named J. Martineau wrote this, It is quite possible that an idle, floating spirit can never look up with clear eye to God, spreading its miserable anarchy before the symmetry of the creative mind. In the midst of a disorderly being, that has neither center nor circumference, kneeling beneath the glorious sky that everywhere has both, and for a life that is all failure, turning to the Lord of the silent stars of whose punctual thought it is that not one faileth, the heavens, with their everlasting faithfulness, look down on no sadder contradiction than the sluggard and the slattern in their prayers." Now, I think you know what a sluggard is, a lazy person, and a slattern is a sloppy person. And yet, it is a description of all of us, isn't it, in some form or other, some degree or other. And God is asking us, will you trust me to help you with this thing that needs to be done? Will you act in obedience to that which you know you ought to do and are procrastinating? Another selection from this same little book, Jesus said in, in in John 9, 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. That latter part of the verse, I think, is one that we need to remember because very often, we because we have been sluggardly or slatternly during the day, we have not finished the work that the Lord has given us to do, and so we're staying up till all hours of the night. Jesus didn't do that. It says... He says the night cometh when no man can work and no woman is supposed to be working at night. We're supposed to be sleeping. You know, that was God's arrangement. I used to live with jungle Indians who had so much better sense than we do in the way they organized their day. The women, (coughs) they got up usually between 2 and 3.30 in the morning for a very good reason. They went to bed between 6.30 and 7 at night. These people worked all day, and they worked hard. The job that all the men had, and there were very few men, we lived with a group of people numbering 60. 53 of them were women and children. There were seven men who were responsible to provide meat for all of these people, including three foreigners who contributed absolutely nothing to that community's economy. And those men had a very tough job. They had to start out before sunrise with their blowguns and their poisonous darts, and they would be gone all day in the jungle, each alone, individually, because obviously hunters can't hunt in groups when you're looking for wild animals. And very often they would spend 12 full hours chasing through the jungle and sometimes come back with nothing at all. The women, on the other hand, were responsible to do all the planting, and that was extremely hard work. They had to cut down all the underbrush. The men did the cutting of trees, but the women had to cut the underbrush with machetes, and they had to plant and harvest and do all of that sort of thing. They also made clay pots. They went fishing. They fished with their hands and with nets. My little three-year-old daughter learned to fish with her hands, which I never managed to do. So everybody worked hard all day long. And they would come back, when the men came back in the afternoon, usually the women came back earlier, the men would come back about sundown and they would eat whatever there was to eat. If they had brought meat, then of course the women had to cook that. And as soon as possible, everybody sank into their hammocks and went to bed. So there I would be, sitting in my hammock in my little house with no walls, realizing that it wasn't very likely that I was going to fall asleep before seven o'clock so it made it a little more difficult for me to wake up between 2 and 3 in the morning. But how much more sensible it is to go to bed when you're tired, rather than sit up in the evening and try to be scintillating and sociable when you're absolutely exhausted. And we miss out a great deal when we don't get up early in the morning. My father used to get up between 4.30 and 5 almost every morning. And people would sometimes say to him, well, how do you do that? And these were in the days, ladies, long before anybody ever heard of a morning person. I think that's a lot of baloney myself. Uh, People who say, well, I'm not a morning person. They're just people who are probably sluggards, and they don't like to get (laughs) up. And I don't suppose that there are really very many of us who welcome the sound of the alarm clock with tremendous joy, and before the alarm clock has quit ringing, our feet are on the floor. Not very many of us are just dying to get out of bed in the morning. But you know, Jesus got up a great while before day, before day. And people would say to my father, how do you do this? My father's answer was very simple, you have to start the night before. And if you're going to go to bed early, you must have finished the work, that God gave you to do. Now, is this important? Do I really have to talk about something like this? Yes, I do, because God is dealing with me on these very issues. Am I finishing the work God gave me to do, or am I distracted by a whole lot of things that God never gave me to do? And if you find yourself burning out, then you need to have a look at your schedule and see which things God didn't put there, because God is not going to allow anybody to burn out doing his work. There is always time to do the will of God. There is always strength to do the will of God. Nobody ever failed to do the will of God because of lack of time or lack of strength. I think of Johnny Erickson. Johnny has virtually no physical strength. She has a tremendous amount of uh, drive and brilliance and determination to do what God has given her to do. But, as most of you know, Johnny Erickson is paralyzed. And she cannot walk and she can't do anything with her hands. She paints by putting a paintbrush in her mouth. But she is not failing to do the will of God because of lack of strength. And none of us can ever use the excuse that we didn't have time to do the will of God. Our problem is that God has given us exactly the same amount of time. Every single one of us has exactly the same amount of time. Are we faithful stewards of that time? Are we using it properly? If we're not using it properly, then we're we're making excuses for ourselves. The habit of sloth is a poison. It permeates your life, it infects your will, and it breeds in you a hatred of exertion. We Americans, let's face it, love comfort. And we love fun. And real sacrifice and real hardship for us is when the electricity goes off or when the air conditioning isn't working. You know, Then we're in big trouble because we've got to have comfort and we got to have fun. Instead of doing our duty promptly and thoroughly and diligently at once, we put it off. And I discovered a verse in Second Chronicles recently that I didn't know was in the Bible, but I copied it out on a little card and I stuck it in a mirror. I walk past that mirror every single day in and out of my office, which is, I have to go through the bedroom to get into my little study, so every, every time I walk past that, which is probably 15 times a day, here's this little card that says, do it now. Do it now. And if I happen to walk past that dresser and there's a little bit of dust on it, I get the message, do it now. Another aspect of slothfulness is doing it in a slapdash manner. We may do it fast, but we're not doing it thoroughly and carefully because there's something else that we're much more interested in getting to. So we just want to do this job, which we really don't like, in a slapdash fashion. And I had to deal with my oldest granddaughter, whose name is Elizabeth. She is a very fast worker. She's an efficient housekeeper. She can cook. She can sew. She can clean house. She can take care of her younger brothers and sisters. She does a lot of things, and she's homeschooled, and she was doing her homeschool work in a slapdash manner. She's smart enough that she doesn't have to work very hard at it, but she was doing it in a very slapdash manner, just get the thing over with so that I can have fun. Well, I'm very much afraid that my granddaughter Elizabeth takes after her grandmother Elizabeth, and that that is my temptation too. Get it over with, get it out of here, get the thing done. Instead of faithfully saying, Lord, help me to do this in a way which glorifies you, no matter how humdrum and ordinary and repetitive that particular task may be. And you young mothers know what repetitive tasks you have to do. It is the same dishes you have to wash every day. It's the clothes that have to be done over and over again. And I do want to put in a little parenthesis here, young ladies, I think you live in a generation that has an absolutely absurd idea about cleanliness. I was talking to a bunch of young mothers recently, and I found out that they averaged at least three loads of washing per day, six days a week. Now, if you have 18 children, I think maybe that might be necessary. But ask yourself, is this faithful stewardship? Or is this just that the child is so lazy he doesn't want to put the thing on the hanger, it's easier to dump it into the laundry basket? Be careful. Don't overlook that kind of slothfulness in your child. My parents treated delayed obedience as disobedience. If we were told to do something and one of our parents discovered that we were not carrying out their instructions, then of course we knew that we were gonna be punished. But we would immediately say, but I was just going to. That's not good enough. We had to do it and we had to do it at once. Good work is to be performed at the right time. One of the old writers that deals with this subject said, Sloth is an adversary to be resisted. And we must expect God to help us to resist our adversary. This writer says, Take your, dis- your disinclination by the throat and throw it overboard. And we do have to do that sometimes. Take ourselves by the throat or by the scruff of the neck and throw it overboard, just make yourself get out of that chair, turn off that TV, put away that book, stop doing the thing that is not required of you, and do the thing which is required. Just the other day, I was checking myself out on doing it now, and I noticed a place where I had don't remember when was the last time that I happened to have occasion to look in that corner and there were cobwebs in that corner. And So immediately I got the lamb's wool duster and flicked it out. On that same day, I remembered that I was supposed to have written a postcard to somebody, and these are things which I do believe God requires of us. Now, I can't tell you that God says you must stop dead in your tracks and clean the cobwebs out of the corner because there may be something much more important than that that God is asking you to do. I'm just giving you examples the way in which the Spirit of God touches my conscience. I had promised to answer somebody's question on a postcard, and I hadn't get done it yet. And I had a knife that desperately needed to be sharpened, and it's just a nuisance to sharpen that knife. And to put that thing away, is that where that thing belongs? And all day long, I'm trying to remember to put things away. But some very practical helps, which have really given me peace and a much more ordered and quiet life is to do a doable portion of a thing. Now if you have the most distasteful task in the world, maybe it is a closet that you have no idea what it contains and you just think one of these days I have got to do something about that closet. Now it doesn't mean that you have to do everything that one day. But if you take a doable portion, now I want to make this connected. These, these things which I am saying are very much a part of my spiritual life. Maybe some of you don't think of housework or desk work as being anything to do with a spiritual life, but it is in the tiny little things in your life that our faithfulness and obedience to God is most clearly revealed I went to a Christian boarding school when I was in high school, a school in Florida. And the headmistress was a very redoubtable figure. She was a couple inches taller than I am, weighed probably 80 pounds more than I do. And when she came into a room, it was like a galleon in full sail. And we trembled in our boots. And one of the things that she used to say to us over and over again was, don't go around with a Bible under your arm if you didn't sweep under the bed and by that she meant I don't want any pious talk coming out of a messy room and we had rules about how our rooms had to be kept and how they had to look by the time we went down to breakfast every morning when we went to breakfast one of the teachers was inspecting all the rooms and we had rugs in those rooms not wall-to-wall carpet but rugs and we had no vacuum cleaners. You can imagine, a thousand years ago, we didn't have all the conveniences that you have. And we had a broom, and we had to sweep those rugs. Well, you could sweep rugs, and it's not very hard to get a whole lot of dust under the bed. And if we were in a big hurry, we might sweep the rugs and maybe dust the top of the dresser, but the dirt was under the bed. Because that was a requirement of the school, it was obedience to God. And whatever is required of me as a wife, as a mother as a grandmother, as a radio broadcast broadcaster, or whatever the job may be that God has given me to do, that is, to me, spiritual work. Paul wrote to the Colossians, and he said, you serve the Lord Christ. He was writing to slaves, specifically mentioning slaves who had masters. And he said, don't do your work just for your earthly master. Remember, you serve the Lord Christ. And that might be a good motto for you to put up over, over the sink in your kitchen. Ye do serve the Lord Christ. Have you thought about Mary's responsibility as the mother of the Son of God? Here is the perfect example of godly womanliness. There was nothing sluggardly, slatternly, or slothful about Mary, I'm sure, Bible doesn't tell us anything does it but if Jesus worked with his step his foster father Joseph in the carpenter shop what sort of benches and tables do you suppose he turned out i have no doubt that for the 30 years that we assume he must have been in the carpenter shop with his father those silent years when he was not doing anything that we would call spiritual work as far as we know he was making good tables. He was sawing faithfully. He was sanding thoroughly. He was doing his work gladly, faithfully, thoroughly, and in such a way as to be acceptable to the people who came to that shop to buy. Make up your mind to do a a doable portion of a thing. Now sometimes our houses get to be such a mess or our lives so out of order that we don't know where to begin, and the temptation is to sit down in a pile of self-pity and feel sorry for ourselves and do nothing. Maybe switch on the TV and sit there and eat chocolates. Now, I'm sure nobody here does anything like that, but we hear about such people. One lady told me her whole house is just a total mess. She said, I don't know where to begin. I have four little children. The oldest one is seven years old. She said, the house is just absolute chaos. I've got laundry stacked up. There's no place to sit in the living room. We've got stuff all over the living room. We've got toys. We've got dirty clothes. We've got shoes. I don't know where to begin. Can you tell me what to do? And my answer is very simple. Maybe you can begin with one room. Just take everything that doesn't belong in that room and put it in a garbage bag. Maybe you should take two garbage bags, put everything that's going to be thrown away in one and put everything that's going to be put away somewhere else in the other one. And anything that belongs in that room, then put it in the proper place, take it off the sofa so that there is a place to sit down. But maybe one room is too overwhelming for somebody like that. My my advice to her then, I said, take one closet or take one drawer, maybe that top dresser drawer of yours. When's the last time you pulled it all the way out and turned it upside down and found a whole lot of stuff you didn't know was in there? Something doable. And I apply this same rule to my praying. I have to confess, ladies, that prayer for me is... Probably the hardest work I do because I'm so distractible. The minute I set myself to pray my mind goes in all sorts of directions and so maybe I should pray for five minutes about one particular thing or about one list. I've got different lists for different days of things that I pray for and I can pray about that and then maybe I should read open my Bible and read a little bit. If you find reading the Bible hard to do and you get a little slothful about that because you just can't concentrate and I don't understand what Ezekiel is talking about or whatever our excuses might be for being slothful. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do one thing at a time instead of taking on a huge job. And you know you might find it much easier than you anticipated to do the job. Now very recently I got rid of an old computer, which I'd had for 12 years, and got myself a new Apple Macintosh. And everybody said to me, anybody can learn to use a Mac. Well, my niece, who works for Mac, said to me, well, Aunt Betty, what you need is a book called Mac for Dummies. <laughs> and there is such a book, and I, know I now have it. I mentioned it in a meeting in Houston just a few weeks ago and mentioned that I was intending to go and buy that book, and somebody bought the book for me that very day. So I have Mac for dummies, but I confess it was an overwhelming task. I don't have time to learn this computer. It's far more complicated than the other one. They call it user-friendly. What am I going to do? And I was so nervous about it that I felt as if I couldn't get anything else done until I conquered this thing. And the Lord, of course, was merciful to me, as he always is. And he said... I'm going to help you. Now take one hour out of your day. Don't think that on this particular Tuesday you're going to go through the whole book and learn the thing. Maybe you're not even going to learn one lesson out of that book in one day. But set yourself what seems to you a reasonable amount of time. Can you find one hour? Yes, Lord. And I go back to Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And you know, I expected it was going to take me six months to learn that computer. Well, I haven't begun to learn all the functions that it has, but I have learned within about two weeks what I have to know, the things which I have to know in order to write my newsletter or check on my indexes or work on a book or whatever. Just the part that I need to know, the Lord has helped me. And I figure if the Lord wants me to learn something more like email or finances, very scary stuff, in his time, he will help me. And one of my life verses is Isaiah 57, 50 verse 7 from the King James because it's quite different in newer translations, but there it says the Lord God will help me. Do you have too much to do? Are your tasks too hard and too daunting so that you worry? Now, there's one thing that we are forbidden to do in the scripture, and that is to be anxious. God tells us, be anxious for nothing. In Philippians 4, we read the secret of peace. It starts out by saying, don't worry about anything, whatever. Now, may I ask you, ladies, how many of you can remember what you worried about last Tuesday night? Maybe somebody can. And if you can, ask yourself, did it help? Did it accomplish anything positive? We all know that worry is absolutely fruitless. But how do you quit if you happen to be a worrier? I'm, I'm a born worrier. You're looking at a born worrier. My parents were born worriers, too. So I can b- blame it on my genes, I guess. no. I can't because God says, Don't worry about anything whatever, but, and this is the antidote, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the result, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Quit worrying. Pray, give thanks, and the peace of God will come. And that should be the rule of all of our lives. Begin the task that you dread, quietly, calmly. And I had to take myself by the scruff of the neck, as it were, when I sat down to that computer and just said, Lord, quiet my nerves, give me the courage to face this thing, clarify, clear my mind, clarify my thinking. And you know, he did indeed help me to do it quietly and courageously. And I found that I could do a great deal more than I had expected to do. Begin the job resolutely. What is the thing that you dread the most and you've been putting off the longest? That thing is really a demon sucking at the spring of your life, And you hate it, and you try to avoid it, and you close your eyes to it. And you could solve the whole thing by walking straight up to it and doing it. Just do it. And it is the most wonderfully freeing and liberating and peace-giving feeling when we have done the thing which we ought to have done. Now, in some churches, they use certain written prayers. And one of those old written prayers is... Most merciful God, we have erred and strayed against thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us, miserable offenders. Spare thou those, O God, who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent. Have you left undone this week anything that you ought to have done? Who of us could claim to have done it all? Have you done those things which you ought not to have done? Who of us could say no to that? If we don't walk straight up to the thing and do it, you're going to be harassed and annoyed by the future prospect. Of having to do that thing sooner or later. And that is going to lead probably to some form of depression. I am absolutely convinced that, and I'm no no psychiatrist, and I'm certainly not a medical doctor, any medical doctor will tell you that your emotions can make you sick. And any psychiatrist will tell you that your emotions may have physical causes. So they're very much intertwined. I do believe that disobedience leads to depression. Disobedience is very often what's at the back of it. We have sinned in some way. We have not asked forgiveness. And I think there was something about that in the song that we heard sung this morning. There may be somebody, not very far from here, that you have been intending to forgive, but you have been putting it off. What if that person died? What if you died? without asking forgiveness. Depression sets in, weariness, a sense of helplessness, a sense of being overwhelmed and depressed, and perpetual disquiet in your spirit. And I think that describes too many Christian lives. They're not very Christian, are they? There's an upheaval. There is lack of settledness, of calm, of tranquility. And that interferes with our prayers, with our trust. And with our obedience, a most wonderfully simplifying principle of my life, of which I didn't know the source. I learned from my mother many years ago four simple words, do the next thing. And lo and behold, Mrs. DuBose, the headmistress of that school that I went to, said exactly the same thing. She would repeat that again and again in some of her talks to us students, do the next thing. One morning, my daughter, who is the mother of eight children, called me from California in tears, and she said, Mama, I don't know what the next thing is. I've got about eight things that have to be done simultaneously. What do I do? And I said, well, just ask the Lord, what is the next thing? And she's told me since then, she said, I've gotten, I've learned what to do. And Any mother of two children knows that her time is completely taken up. My mother raised six children, and she said, if one child takes all your time, six can't take any (laughs) more. And so, uh, Valerie said, when she feels overwhelmed with things to do, she just says, Lord, please show me what is the next thing. And whatever the next thing is that comes into her head is the thing that she does. Now, I didn't know the source of this motto until just after my mother died, I found in her little prayer notebook the complete text of a poem that tells where this came from. From an old English parsonage down by the sea, there came in the twilight a message to me. Its quaint Saxon legend, deeply engraven, hath, as it seems to me, teaching from heaven. And on through the hours the quiet words ring, like a low inspiration, do the next thing many a questioning many a fear many a doubt hath its quieting here moment by moment let down from heaven time opportunity guidance are given fear not tomorrow's child of the king trust them with jesus do the next thing do it immediately do it with prayer Do it reliantly, casting all care. Do it with reverence, tracing his hand, who placed it before thee with earnest command. Stayed on omnipotence, safe neath his wing. Leave all resultings. Do the next thing. Looking to Jesus, ever serener. Working or suffering be thy demeanor, in his dear presence the rest of his calm, the light of his countenance be thy psalm. Strong in his faithfulness praise and sing, then as he beckons thee, say it with me, do the next thing. I can't tell you how that calms me, simplifies my life enables me to do the work that God has given me to do. Take yourself by the scruff of the neck. Choose a doable portion. Pray as you go along. Begin quietly and courageously and ask the Lord to help you. Someone has written, Sloth is like a worm in the wood. This vice will go on insensibly, secretly corroding and eating away the marrow of the spiritual life. I'm asking you this morning to examine your own conscience. Maybe it's a tiny thing which seems to you to have nothing to do with spirituality. Maybe it's a very big thing that you know very well is disobedience to God. Ask him to show you Ask Him to help you, and then just do it. God bless you.
0: I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for My Granny's Inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.